News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC, the New Yorkist podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city. I'm Katie Honan, here with Professor Christina Greer and Harry Siegel. Hi, guys. Hello there. Later in this episode, you'll be hearing from Taryn Delaney-Smith, a.k.a. Miss New York 2022, who will be representing the Empire State at the Miss America pageant next week, and also regularly reps the city on Instagram and TikTok. Her tagline, have fun, do good. Not a bad tagline. But first, a special and time-sensitive programming announcement now that FAQ NYC is part of the city, the nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to serving the people of New York with hard-hitting local reporting powered by listeners and readers like you. And if you give to the city by Thursday, December 8th, every dollar you donate will be tripled. It's the only NYC shell game that pays off where you can turn $1 into three and have them all go to something that matters. Head to thecity.nyc slash give to donate today. That's thecity.nyc slash G-I-V-E. And if you're hearing this after Thursday, don't fear. Your donation will be matched two to one through the end of the year. And with that, Harry, fill listeners in on some of what's been happening over the jam-packed week here in our only city in the world. Hey, so there's a ton happening. I'm going to go fast and keep this pretty brief. Uh, Trump organization, guilty, scheming to defraud, criminal tax fraud, falsifying business records, and more. Case brought by Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg. It's cool. At the same time, this is a $1.6 million fine for hiding more than that in benefits to top executives. Remains to be seen if Trump himself, who says he will appeal this verdict, which um, will be charged uh, with anything by Bragg's office. Uh, Big leadership shuffle atop the NYPD uh, uh, um, and under this police commissioner with several people with close ties to deputy mayor. For public safety, Phil Banks coming into the top ranks, including new chief of patrol, Jeffrey Madry, who in 2017 was penalized 45 vacation days after he had a physical altercation with the woman who said she'd been in a long-term affair with him as the two met in a park. And he then ordered responding officers to take off. Big moves also at City Hall, where uh, Sheena Wright, the very accomplished former head of the United Way, and the Abyssinian Development Corporation, uh, then in the Adams administration as deputy mayor for strategic innovations, is now going to become the uh, first deputy mayor, replacing de Blasio holdover Lorraine. Wright is also the partner of Philip Banks' brother and school's chancellor, David Banks, incidentally, plus a new chief of staff for Adams, Camille joseph Arlick, who'd been a special advisor to the mayor and replaces Wired, Brooklyn attorney, and longtime Adams guy. Frank Carone, Tish James, whose office put out the report that uh, culminated in the resignation of Governor Andrew Cuomo facing heat of her own after it came out that uh, her office had found out about allegations involving her chief of staff and longtime staffer, Ibrahim Khan, uh, about sexual harassment. Uh, they put this out for, to an outside attorney to investigate during the campaign. That investigation evidently confirmed, reportedly confirmed, at least one of the allegations against Khan, who is now resigned. Um, The issue here seems to be 
In large part, the, this didn't come out publicly in any way until after the election James was just in and won by about 10 points, which is not great for a Democrat in New York, generically speaking, um, that none of this came out until after the uh, the the election. Lastly, Adams is pushing back Mayor Adams hard against widely critical coverage of his new plan to have cops and other city workers, I guess, bring more people who appear to be severely mentally ill to hospitals for evaluations with or without their consent. So we had um, the senior advisor on this issue who helped come up with this plan, also one of the authors of Kendra's Law, Brian Stedden, on the pod last week to discuss this. City Hall then put out a transcript of that appearance, which they haven't, I don't think, previously done with people other than the, the mayor, as they're trying to push back on, on the narrative that, that, that they're going to be sweeping people off of the streets in a Rudy-like fashion. Um, Christina, you weren't there when uh, we discussed this previously, but... Um, I'm guessing you've got a lot to say about that plan, how the Adams administration is doing generally. Um, what do you think? Yeah, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the administration because we're coming up on one year and I'm sure there'll be lots of think pieces and, you know, requests to talk to us about how is Eric Adams? What's he doing? And, you know, I I, <laughs> I was just telling someone yesterday, he feels like, who is that like slalom skier, Shawnee Davis, was he? Um, who won the Winter Olympics a few years back, black guy. But that's the way Eric Adams feels to me, just kind of slides across this ideological spectrum. Uh, with this particular issue, I was talking to Brian Lehrer the other day, and uh, I came on after um, Dr. Isom, who's actually a Fordham professor, and she was laying out the plan. And my, we didn't, unfortunately, have time to talk to one another. I was just responding to her her conversation with Brian, my biggest issue is thus. They're very clear that, you know, for folks who are going to be picked off the street, who are having episodes who are going to be committed against, possibly against their will, that, you know, they will be evaluated by the hospital. They keep saying it's like they're going to be evaluated by someone at a hospital who is licensed to do that. Let's leave out the doctors and emergency personnel who were like, hey, can you talk to us about that? Because we're sort of we're swamped over here. COVID's real and we've got other things going on. But my question that still hasn't been answered is how are we getting from seeing someone with an episode on a platform or the street to them being in the hospital? Because that time period in between seeing someone with an episode and them actually getting the help they need, there are a lot of different people involved in that. And like my conversations about how involved will the NYPD be in that conversation? Who are the licensed professionals on the street to help these individuals? That to me still isn't clear. And so I really do worry about the implementation of this program. Um, I think a lot of New Yorkers are definitely worried about the number of mentally unstable individuals that they see on a daily basis. I mean, I would also say that's part of living in a city and we don't have cars as much and we don't live in the suburbs. But I just don't think this administration has fully articulated what the real plan will be to get people who need the help um, in a way that doesn't involve police intervention and or asking individuals who just don't have the training to deal with that um, to help these individuals. So, so if I may, there's a reason they don't want to articulate this part. And for people who do not want help and are mentally ill and are maybe fearful of the state to start with, the new plan is the old plan. And that plan is always that 
police officers and more active ones who are ones who are pushed harder by their supervisors are going to find people who appear plainly not well and like they present a threat to themselves, you know, aren't wearing shoes, mumbling to themselves, whatever. And they're going to take those people forcibly, which is why it will be the police, to hospitals. What's more, they're not generally arresting these people or charging them with any sort of crime. And under state law, they can do that. So what we're talking about is roughly treating people who who are very much in their own universe and their own pain, throwing them into the back of police cars and dropping them off, sometimes maced at these ERs. Uh, to be evaluated by a doctor, according to state law, usually a psychologist, um, and often taking people who have many issues to start with them now in more trauma and pain because they've just had a scary and violent encounter with the police. Police officers, by the way, the unions are not in love with this plan either. Like They don't want to be the front lines or the only people dealing with EDPs, but if we have half a system that involves, okay, uh, we're going to get these people into hospitals for evaluations and then figure out what we can do from there, right? There aren't enough beds. Uh, people aren't necessarily getting AOTs where they have to take medicine afterward. You know, what we are talking about is having more police aggressively bring people to hospitals. That That is, I think, the bottom line here. And that is police. It's not all the other city workers, particularly is what we're talking about here are people who don't want to go. And how else would you get them there? Right. And that to me is where the rubber hits the road because I think you can take you can take someone who's not having an episode and have them interact with the police and we know that things can go south. So that's my real concern is that someone who may not um, be of sound mind is interacting with the NYPD and we know that the vast majority of those officers aren't trained to de-escalate a situation, let alone being trained to deal with someone who's having some mental health challenges. Yeah. Katie, I think you reported that Stop me if I'm wrong. I'm flipping bylines. The, the, you know, there was this program under de Blasio to have this training for all NYPD officers, and the, 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 that mostly hasn't happened, um, is my understanding to this point. I didn't write about that, but yeah, you know, I think there there have been a lot of efforts throughout the years and now multiple administrations on that. You know, I, I, I do want to point out when we when we spoke to Brian Stetton last week, you know, and obviously this is this whole issue, it's very complicated. And obviously, as reporters, it's like, how can you succinctly explain this announce, you know, this this program and initiative based off an announcement that lasted about an hour that was led mainly by the mayor, who is not as knowledgeable, not as an insult to him. But, you know, when you have a team of people who, in Brian's case, drafted Kendra's law, but the messenger is from the mayor, you know, obviously, there's going to be some misinterpretation, some confusion, especially when you're um, a highly educated in the weeds person like Brian, who has his job because of that, you know, reading the coverage must be maddening, right? Because there's little things that are got got wrong. And I know last week he was very quick to clarify that, you know, it's not that they're going to be interacting with police necessarily. It's just the conduit to mental health professionals. But as you said, I mean, we're not flooding the subways with thousands of trained psychiatrists and mental health professionals. The, The police officers are the ones who will be the go-between. So I think that's where there is that concern from people. Um, And yeah, and obviously it's the staffing, right? Um, It's, you can't just have someone interact once with a mental health professional and get better. It's a years long process. And the relationship you have with that person is very important um, and it needs to be sustained. So you know, I, and I know what Brian said last week is that this was the sort of first of a few announcements, and I and I look forward to hearing more. 
um, about the practical side of this and what it looks like when it's actually happening? I think my biggest concern is that we're going to, especially with COVID, we're just going to see more and more people who need assistance. I mean, there are more and more families who are who are just struggling with loved ones who need assistance. And I, I think my issue is that I just don't have faith in the NYPD and their training because I've seen so many times where NYPD, the NYPD has intervened in a way where it's like, we're not even dealing with someone who's having an episode. We're just dealing with people where the cops have come in in like an aggressive, you know, sort of stance in this hyper-masculine, hyper-military um, ethos. And it just makes the situation worse. And so that's my concern for this kind of hyper-militaristic way that the NYPD can behave. Obviously, caveat, I'm not saying all NYPD officers, but I'm saying enough that I've unfortunately had to interact with where it just doesn't seem as though they have the training for de-escalation in a lot of ways. So going to these uh, changes at City Hall and inside the NYPD, Eric Adams, it's like a native son in New York. He's got a some real understandings of uh, his, at least, of what needs to happen, the role police need to pay, the role that social services need to pay more broadly, all those things. It's been a complicated first year. Christina, what are you going to be looking for going forward to measure um, success and whether or not Adams has a plan and is able to implement it that involves this broader picture he always talks about in this balancing act, where it's not just the NYPD, but it, it, it's them doing what's, what what he says is necessary right now to help get people toward compassionate, longer-term solutions to mm-hmm. their problems. I'm going to be looking at staffing personnel and the, the folks he's surrounded himself with. That's the first thing. You know, obviously, there's going to be like, oh, my gosh, so-and-so's left. You know, people leave. These jobs are hard, you know, and it's, you know, Eric Adams has clearly said many times that he operates on three or four hours of sleep. Good for him. I mean, you know, sleep is fuel for the body. So I would I would strongly suggest that Mary get a few more hours of sleep. That's just me. I'm on the eight-hour ministry. But, you know, it's a really hard job for, for individuals and their families. So I'm not knocking the mayor who will most likely have some sort of transitions of, of different folks coming and going. Um, because a year in the in administration is incredibly hard. I mean, you know, we we know enough commissioners here and there where, I mean, the hours they put in are just as much as the mayor, if not more. So um, who's coming and going, I'm interested in, you know, just like de Blasio, I think the mayor has surrounded himself with some people, you know, as Katie mentioned, who really know their stuff, who are into the minutia of their particular expertise, you know, it remains to be seen how much the mayor listens to them. Um, and I think he does listen to, you know, the folks he surrounds himself with. I do think he still has some unsavory characters where, you know, I've got some question marks. It's like, why are you still riding with this person? Loyalty is one thing, but, you know, don't don't get yourself in trouble rolling with folks who seem a little suspect. So I'll be looking at that. And then, you know, breaking down a lot of these issues uh, into various categories. So how are you dealing with, you know, COVID and public health? And, you know, the opioid crisis, which is still very real. How are you dealing with, you know, the housing crisis? Or, you know, you remember a few months back, every reporter wanted to talk about trash. Um, So, 
you know, breaking down these various topics, um, relations with the NYPD, obviously, you know, he has a lot of women in charge of these various entities. Um, and so how are they managing uh, their budgets and their personnel and just the overall ecosystem? So I think, you know, over, I'm still in the middle of the semester, not middle of the semester, I'm still <laughs> wrapping up the semester. But afterwards, I think I'm going to make a list of all of the different policy issues that are of concern. You know, how how is your school chancellor doing? You know, what is this relationship and conversation that we're having with public and charter schools and co-locations? And how are parents feeling the mayor is doing uh, when we're still with COVID and certain uh, requirements that that students have? Um, you know, with the specialized high schools, the mayor had, you know, some unique stances. So I just want to make you know, an overall kind of rubric, if you will, to see how he's doing. But, you know, I also, to be fair, a year is not a lot of time. Like I'm still, you know, I've said this time and time again, I, I'm not making any hardcore pronunciations. Is that the word I'm looking for? I haven't had my coffee. Um, Announcements. Thank you. Proclamations. Um, thank you. Proclamations. Let's, there we go. Let's, give me all the P words. But, you know, any major proclamations because a year actually isn't even a very long time. And to be fair to this mayor, and it's so interesting because people on the far left, you know, just are not interested in kind of having any sort of dynamic conversation about the mayor. It's like, he's terrible and that's it. And I'm like, settle down. It's New York. Like it's a complicated place, but you know, he's inheriting a city where we kind of had an absentee landlord for a really long time. And so I'm sure that there are lots of things that was just kind of pushed to the sideline and not really talked about. And de Blasio was given, I would say, a large birth and a, a lot of grace by a lot of folks the last six years of his mayoralty, to be very honest, in, in a way that Black mayors are just not afforded, period, dot end. And I think the scrutiny under this particular mayor is, is very uh, specific and historic um, and common as someone who studies black mayors, he knows it. I know it. And this is why I'm always scratching my head as to like, why are you hanging out with unsavory characters? Because you know that the microscope on you is way larger than it ever was and ever will be on someone like de Blasio. So speaking of the last six years in New York and, uh, Eric Adams famously telling folks to, uh, go back to Ohio get out of here as he was running for mayor as it happens miss new york came to new york six years ago as you'll hear in her conversation with katie honan and she has actually been using that platform to try to get at some of these issues that we've just been talking about um and particularly shelter and stability for new yorkers who are really in need of it her name is Taryn Delaney Smith. She's talking with Katie Honan. Let's jump right in. The Miss America competition began in 1921 as a bathing beauty review. And after decades of evolution, it's ditched the bathing suit and highlights the accomplishments of women from across the United States, their goals, and what they would like to see in the United States. So we have today Miss New York 2022, Taryn Delaney Smith who will be representing the state. And I know you don't have favorites, but I'm going to guess for our purposes, we'll say it's New York City. At next <laughs> week's competition, which will be held at the Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. Taryn, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So I guess, full disclosure, um, I co-emceed this year's Miss New York competition in Peekskill. It's a long story as to how. But it's where I first met you and also how I really got to learn about the history of the competition, how it's changed throughout the years, and especially New York's role in it. Um, So for our listeners, I know you know the answer to this, Taryn. Um, Yeah. Which state has the the most Miss America titles in the history of 100 years? It's New York, baby. All the way. And it's and we're the only state to ever have um a th- what's called a three peat. We had three winners in a row. So we had um we had hang on, I'm gonna get it wrong. We had uh, Mallory Hagan, then Nina Devaluri, and then we had um Kira Kostansev. And they were consecutive winners, which blew people's minds. I remember when it happened, I was watching on TV and they were like, the winner is it's gonna be a three peat. And like the entire I mean. I've never seen anything like it. It was just like people were on the floor. It was insane that we had three young women win in a row. So, you know, we've just been, we've been really lucky as a state to have very, very diverse winners. Um, you know, truly we've had, I, I, I don't know the stats on if we are the most diverse with title holders, but I know for a fact um, we're up there. We've had just so many um, different types of women from different backgrounds hold this title. And I'm really lucky to be part of that and continue that tradition. Yeah. And a fun fact, because we have a lot of wonky listeners, um, one of those Miss New Yorks and who became a Miss America was Bess Meyerson, who was the first Jewish Miss America. And she was yes. the yeah. special friend of former mayor Ed Koch. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that was her. I guess that's how she became. Well, it started with Miss America, but, you know, a lot of history with Bess. Um, so, yeah, I was very happy to hear that. And I think those three, Pete, it was 2013, 14, and 15. And that was after more than what, 30-year stretch without a, a Miss New York title winner. I think the one before yes. that was Vanessa Williams, right? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Well, I learned yeah, all yeah. of this in the back of the Peekskill Theater, uh, putting on a gown. I did I did get to wear a gown. So for our this year's Miss New York, you know, Taryn, I wanted to hear from you a little bit of background about who you are, where you grew up, and what drew you to New York. And I guess what drew you first to these type of competitions? Because another thing I learned is you know, you don't just like do one competition and you win and that's it. It's a real journey building up to when you get to the Miss America competition. Yeah. So I'm originally from Seattle, Washington. And before any viewers get upset about this, it's very (laughs) common that, you know, you you have to just be a resident. I've been a resident of New York for six years. I love New York. I've, I've served in New York. I've worked in New York many years. So I'm very qualified to be Miss New York, but I'm not originally from Miss New York. And in fact, that three Pete you had, where all three women were Miss New York's row, um, none of them were originally from New York either. So <laughs> um, that's common. I mean, that's the, usually the thing, right? Like people. Yeah. That's usually, I mean, it's you know, very it's, common. And then not only, especially, I think it's a testament to New York's, um, the, the really the spirit of New York. It's everyone from here is from often somewhere else, whether it be a generation ago or this generation, like New York is made up of people from all over. So, um, I think it's, I think it's actually quite fitting. Um, so yeah, no, I have, um, I was originally from Seattle, Washington. Um, I knew my whole life that I wanted to live in New York and I, I mean, I'd never even been here before. And I told my whole family every holiday at the table, well, I mean, I'm going to be in New York. So nobody count on me next Christmas, right? Because I mean, I just, and that was when I was like seven years old. I mean, I was a New Yorker 
from the get-go. I just, I loved everything about it. I watched Breakfast at Tiffany's over and over and over again. Um, and I just really believed in the spirit of New York. I felt that it aligned with who I was. Um, I was this really, really loud Black girl in a largely white community. Um, I was really goofy. I absolutely didn't fit in. I was I was bullied pretty aggressively growing up. And I just knew in my heart that New York was going to be the one place in the whole world that would accept me. And I was right. I was absolutely right. Um, and so um, I was, imagine my surprise as somebody who certainly didn't fit in. Um, you know, when I was a senior in high school, I sang in a school talent show and my, the home ec teacher named Danielle, um, she called me into her classroom and she was like, I just think that you could be the next Miss America. And I was like, no way. Um, and I'd like still have braces on at that point. <laughs> and, um, and she was like, no, I really, really believe you could, you know, I heard you sing and I've heard you speak. And she knew that I was really active in the community, um, as a community servant. And I actually really wasn't interested in competing at them at that moment because I, I didn't need one more reason to be made fun of. <laughs> and I certainly didn't need one more reason. To be, if I didn't win, it wasn't going to feel very good. Right. And she was like, I want you to compete for Miss Seattle. It's a local competition. She's like, you're going to win. And um, at first I didn't want to do it, but I had a, been in tandem with this. I'd been really trying to do some really serious community work for kids in my area because um, I felt really called to it. And I was having trouble getting into schools because people were like, well, who are you? You know, who the heck are you? You're just a random high school student. And my Danielle, my teacher, the third time she called me into her room, I brought that up and she said, well, you know, being Miss Seattle would really help with that. And I was like, okay, I'll do it. Um, so I go in, a lot of these young women had been competing for years. Um, one of the young women I was competing against um, had even like at Miss Washington been like a runner up. So mm -hmm. I was very much uh, outmanned and outgunned, um, but I won. And it was shocking. It was so shocking that in the video, you can see that I'm clapping for the other girl. And I was like, congratulations. And then they're pointing like, no, you won. And I was like, oh, me? <laughs> good Lord. Um, so, so I won and it started, I got bit by the bug from then on. I competed at Miss Washington a couple of times. Um, but I, again, I really knew that I was going to New York. So, um, I moved to New York when I was 21. Um, I took a year off or from, from competing because I really wanted to ingrain myself in the community. Um, I, I think I took two years off actually. And I just worked in shelters. I just volunteered. I learned about New York, um, fell deep, very deeply in love with New York. And then I went and competed for Miss New York and I got first runner up. And then that year, um, I had technically aged out. So my journey was over. I was very sad. And then they announced that they were going to raise the age limit by one year. And I was like, okay, came back and I won. Um, and that was the year, that was this year, that was the time we met. And I, so I'm just really honored. Um, you're right. It has been a long journey. It's been almost, uh, six years long, seven years long in that time. I've been able to do some really serious advocate work for individuals experiencing homelessness, not only on the West coast, but on the East coast as well. Um, the majority of it here on the East coast. Um, and I've just learned so much. It's made me a better advocate and it's made me a better woman. So that actually is a, is a perfect segue to my next question. You know. What I also was impressed with learning about were people's very, very well researched and the amount of work going into um, the the women's social issues, 
Yes. And yours, as you noted, is is on homelessness. So I guess what drew you to this as an issue? And if you want to just recap a little bit about what work I know you've met with people from the mayor's office, you've you've been down to Congress. So you've done a lot of work in, in advocating um, for, I guess, improved shelters and stuff. So just talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. So um, when I was a little girl, um, I was first born in 1996. Um, my mom was in a difficult place. Um, she was no longer with my dad and she had nowhere to go. And a coworker found out about her situation um, and offered her her laundry room. And so my mom with a three-year-old toddler, who's my brother, and she's pregnant with me, um, started living in a friend's laundry room on a mattress on the floor. And that's where I spent the first few months of my life. And I slept on top of the dryer. And my mom throughout my life pointed to the fact that it was just this really selfless action of one person, the compassionate action of, of one, one person, even though it was small, she didn't, uh, her name was Carolyn. Carolyn didn't have um, a lot of money to give my mom, you know, but what she did have was a space for her to be and providing that safe space. It gave my mom this meaningful foothold out of poverty. My mom was able to um, pursue her career at the time she worked at Nordstrom and she started folding shirts at Nordstrom and went on to management and went on to HR. And she's built this really beautiful and fulfilling career um, over time. And she had a lot of people that helped her along the way. And I recognized early on that shelters play that same role in so many people's lives who don't have a Carolyn. Um, I think I felt for a long time, I, I, it didn't. it's never sat right with me that I've gotten to go on and be the first person in my family to get a master's. I'm a first-generation college student. I've gotten to go on to do these really beautiful things. I've gotten to move to my dream city. I got to do all these things. Um, And I believe, I deeply believe to my core that everybody should have the option. Everybody should have the quality of choice. Um, And social services are that that basis. Um, Social services are that disruptor um, for inequity. And so um, a lot of those social services are given at shelters. And so I started working in shelters when I was 18 or 19. I was just a volunteer. I worked in kids programs. I, I just held babies. I rocked them to sleep. I played with kids. And I got to see firsthand a lot of the needs that shelters had. Um, and I saw that they weren't being met. I was, it didn't sit right with me either that all the shelters that I worked in were completely donation-based. Some of them had grants, but then lost their grants from the government. Others just never received grants from the government at all. Um, and so that really started this really, really passionate advocacy work that I've done. And Becoming Miss New York, I've been an advocate for seven years. But it was only in Becoming Miss New York that I was able to meet with the mayor's office. I, I've met with them many times. Um, I've been able to meet with state Congress people. Um, I've been able to, I advocated at Capitol Hill Day for rental assistance programs. Um, I've been able to sit at these tables that I've been dying to get at um, so that I can show them the statistics, that I can share the stories, that people recognize that shelters are very effective when they have the support that they need. And that's just one platform of many. I, uh, women all over the nation pursue their, their own um, philanthropies of their choice. Um, but mine is just very personal to me. And, um, you know, I guess we can talk a little bit about uh, the competition next week, what that prep work is like. I know you you go a couple days or, I mean, I guess a week or so early. What is that prep work like in the lead up to this competition that we can all watch? But I know there's a lot of work that goes behind the scenes. Well, everybody does it differently. 
But I can tell you, man, I'm going to give you my secrets. I don't know if I'm playing. <laughs> I've <laughs> aged out. Me and Harry have aged out. So we, and, and Dr. Chris yeah. Greer, our other co-host, we, we man, cannot, unless there's like this, yeah. Mr. Ms. Old New York, it's not. <laughs> no, no. So, I mean, really, in my opinion, and we'll see if this rings that it, that it was effective. Um, I think you should just do your job. I truly, I've been doing my job. I've been work. I've been in my community. I've been working every single day um, as Miss New York. Um, I've been in shelters. I've been doing mock interviews, of course, to prepare me for the actual. There's a the, the the highest, one of the most difficult parts of your scoring at Miss America is a 10 minute political interview. Um, it runs a lot, sort of like a White House press conference. Um, one thing I'll tell you about young women that compete in Miss America, they will get every job they ever interview for. <laughs> I promise you that. There is no job interview like this. And I think I've, I mean, in my lifetime, I've probably done over 125 mock interviews with people wow. from all over the country. Um, and that's in my whole lifetime. In this prep, I think I've, I think I've, I've done one a week for the last couple months. So I mean, that's the thing is, is Miss America is really intended to prepare great women for the world and prepare the world for great women. That is their motto. Um, and it's also a scholarship program. So I've earned over $20,000 in the Miss America program in my time competing. Um, and so also I've been applying for scholarships at Miss America and the lead up to the competition, you're now eligible to apply for all these various scholarships in your field and in, in the service work that you've done. So I've applied for those as well. Wow. And, you know, the other thing I know, um, in addition to being Miss New York, um, you're, in, in my opinion, a TikTok star. I don't know what the qualifications are for that. You know, you have a huge presence on social media. And I you know that's also yeah. trying to bring the Miss America into the sort of social social media age. But I want to ask a very New York specific question. I love um, a New York specific question. <laughs> there is sort of the TikTokification of New York City, right? You know, those girls who review places, all this kind of stuff and, and viewing New York. Do you try to approach that as sort of like the clout of New York City? Or are you, I know from your videos, you do a much more realistic view of your life and, and what the city is yeah. like. But I don't know what your approach is to these videos, especially showing your home. You got to keep it real. You got to keep it real. It's New York. Okay. So the, what's funny is a year ago, I started, my, I made my first TikTok. And the whole, re, it went viral. I woke up one morning and it had 21 million views. Um, and that's when I quit my day job as a receptionist. And I was like, well... <laughs> Looks like we've got a new way to pay off my student loans. Um, <laughs> the reason the video went viral is because I was giving a tour of my very cool New York City apartment and it was terrible. Um, the water didn't turn on. Um, I had a cabinet that was like pushed up against the, an oven. And so famously the cabinet door wouldn't open. <laughs> and the next morning, um, like Yahoo News had this article like, woman in New York can't open our cabinet. Is this a human rights issue? And you're like, I guess. Um, they're like trying to quote me on that. Um, and so I think that I've gone about social media in a way where I was, it originally was just satire. I just made fun of, I just made fun of the idea of these, these unattainable lifestyles that people showed of, of themselves in New York. Because it wasn't at all representative of one, the life that I lived in New York, or two, to be frank, the New York that I fell in love with um, six years ago. The New York that I fell in love with, I came here, I was living in Jamaica, Queens. Um, every single day, I had to jump over this feral cat that kept trying to attack my ankles. Like, <laughs> that's New York. And then there was this grandma who, she had this cart. 
And like every day, I swear, we had the same schedule. I'd be walking to school and she'd be walking to the, the grocery store and we would just end up walking together. I still don't know her name and she never has mine. We just walked every <laughs> single day just talking, you know, and like that's New York to me. And I and I always seen New York City in this really um, it's warm and it's welcoming. And I I really I'm not as interested in I know that there's some very, very fabulously wealthy people here and have, that live very fabulous lives. And that's very cool. Uh, for them. <laughs> but I, I'm just so, I'm not interested in that. And I'd like to believe that there's a really large portion of the population that's not interested either. So I've just shown other parts of my life um, living in New York City. And that's where I really found a lot of success. Um, and I've also been able to create a business from that and do brand partnerships because there are brands that are like, I really like this realness. That's how I experience New York City too. And so, yeah, I think it's about online. It's about finding Finding a group of people that see themselves in you and in your life. Oh. Apologies. That's your. That's a real New York. That's Bruce, your dog. That's my great Dane. <laughs> so I've never told this story before. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. That's okay. One moment, because he actually stopped a burglary, like in August. Oh, tell us. Yes. <laughs> For the listeners, there's a gigantic Great Dane walking across the screen right now. He looks about. 15 feet tall. I have distracted him by putting a can of raw pumpkin in a bowl. So hopefully that will work. Um, no. So in August, I was sitting at home on my couch and my door opens. And yes, yeah, I know I've been, I've been not locking my door in New York City. I'm a fool. But I'm sitting there, door opens, and I think it is my partner coming home. And because it opened so quietly, I thought they were sneaking in to scare me. Um, so I was like, I'm going to sneak and I'm going to scare him. So I'm sneaking. The dog's walking with me. And then there's a man that I've never seen before standing in my foyer. Um, and so I screamed and he had the audacity to scream. Like I surprised him breaking into my house. And I realized he was screaming because my dog, my great Dane is standing behind me. And the moment I screamed, my Dane like was like, Ooh, that really scary bark that he just heard. Um, just lost his mind. Anyways. So that's the story of that. He ran off and I never saw him again, but I think he was, I don't, I don't think he was planning on attacking me. I think he was just trying to get an easy, he was like going down the hall. Someone told me, and he was like trying all the doorknobs and I left my unlocked. Yeah. But, seeing who, yeah. Seeing who doesn't lock it. And I hope now the door is locked now. I do lock my door now. Yeah. So I just have one and I have a closing question, but before, before that, I, I know just for people listening, you know, whatever happens next week, Ideally, we want you to bring home another title in New York. But yeah. you still Miss New York through May, correct? Yes. I'm I Miss New York, I think, through May or June. Wow. Um, if, I, if I do not win Miss America, which there's a one in 50 chance that I will, I may not. Um, I'm very prepared to come home and be proud to be Miss New York. And, and I have already made plans um, for what I'm going to do as Miss New York. And, and so uh, I got a lot of work to do still. Um, I raised over $10,000 for local shelters. But by the end of my year... Um, I would like to at least double that. I've done that in six months. So I think it's fair that I can raise another 10,000 um, so that shelters have access to the things that they need that maybe government grants aren't able to do, or maybe they don't have government grants. And that's why I raised funds for that. Um, so uh, really, um, I'm planning on having a year as Miss New York. If I were to win Miss America, then my first runner up would step in and take my place. Yeah. So, you know, and, I, and the final question, I guess, viewing this um, 
role of uh, both social change, but just the glamour that comes along with being Miss New York and then Miss America. I mean, do you think that you've kind of converted both your social media clout to also draw attention to these super important social issues? And I, I don't know how you, what you're thinking in, is on that and trying to make it look, you know, TikTok is fun and it's a beautiful competition and everyone looks nice. You're wearing a gown and you have the talent, but um, I guess, how have you made sure that the focus has been on your social issue and and working yeah. to remind people that, you know, I guess behind all this glitz and glamour, um, there are real people and there are real issues that need to be addressed. Absolutely. Well, the thing is, is the, I, the biggest outpouring of messages that I get all the time from people all over the world, which is insane to me. I mean, people that are like, hi, hello from Spain. Hello from Malta. Right. Like that's incredible. But one of the biggest messages that I get is um, I never either cared about Miss America or I never knew about Miss America, but largely that they had no idea um, the advocacy role, the, the, the immense philanthropy that goes in to the job of being a servant for one year. Um, and so, and it's people that watched my work online because um, I take them on my day-to-day life as Miss New York. And I show them, I'll say, hey, you're going you're, you're gonna to see a photo shoot in this TikTok, but then I'll create another TikTok in which I'm like, this is me speaking with the mayor's office and here's why. Or I just sit down on my couch and I go from doing one TikTok that's more silly and more funny about my life. And then I have a TikTok in which I just sit down in front of my camera and I'm not using um, an accent or a funny voice. Um, and, and it's and it's really just me being a friend, a New Yorker and saying, you know, here's something that you didn't know about social services. Here's what you didn't know about transitional housing programs in your community. Um, and, you know, and here's why they need your support. And um we've been able to do some really incredible things um, just through social media alone. I know social media gets a bad rap in a lot of ways and I understandably so, but it's a communication tool and it is a tool which we can choose how we want to use it. Um, so for example, I'm, I found out from a local shelter that we weren't going to be able to do um, a school uh, back to school event. They, they wanted to give away backpacks to kids, but they'd had this donation link up for like a month. And they called me and they said, we're so sorry, Miss New York. Um, we're not going to be able to have you into the shelter to celebrate the back to school event because we only got three items donated. They said, happens sometimes. It's okay. Um, maybe we'll do one in the winter. And I said, uh-uh, not on my watch, <laughs> not on Miss New York's watch. Um, hang on, just hang tight. And I made a TikTok and I accessed 700,000 people and I sat down and I just, I told them what's up. I said, we've got a, we've got a bunch of kids in the Bronx that need some back to school supplies. And, um, we, we, we have no option. We have absolutely, we have got to help them because there's 700,000 of you, which means everyone can donate $1 and, and we'd be good to go. Um, and so in about three hours, we were able to send 200 kids in the Bronx back to school with brand new backpacks and brand new um, school supplies. And for some of them, that was the first time they were going back to school with all brand new gear, which was so fun. And I got to be there to hand out the backpacks. Um, And I was also able to thank that audience and say, hey, we did it. And people were so excited. They really felt like they'd been part of something profound and special and important because they were even though it's just on TikTok, they were part of something um, bigger than themselves. And I think that is the power that social media holds. And so for me, the glitz and the glamour, whatever, the, the, the pageantry, if you will, of is only one night 
That's just the competition to get the job. The most important part of this entire thing is how are you going to use the microphone when it's in front of you? Whose voices are you going to uh, amplify? Um, Whose lives are you going to uplift? Because you have one year, you've got one shot to do it. Um, And social media has been one of the most effective vehicles for that. Miss New York, Karen Delaney Smith. Yes. We really appreciate you coming on. And I just, you know, for, for, especially for the listeners, is there, I guess, if you want to pitch a website just so they can learn more both about, you know, I think a lot of people might hear, they have a, they have an idea of Miss America and it's an old idea, but just learning about how it's the focus on scholarship competitions. So if you want to just plug Miss New York's website to learn more, and then I guess where to follow you, your journey next week, I guess it's streaming. I know um, the competition. So any information you have on that. Yeah, so the competition, I believe, is streaming on Pageants Live. So you can watch it. And I think it's $32.99 to watch all three nights. And then the other part of that is um, you can go to... So it's my, my website is supportingourshelters.com. I always want to say SOS, but it's not. So it's <laughs> supportingourshelters.com. And on there, you can find links to different shelters that I've you know worked with. Um, you can find more information on my philanthropy, what we do, um, you know, and then also you can follow me on social media at Miss America NY. Good luck. We hope you bring home the title, but we know no matter what, New York is proud of you. So, thank you, Katie. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're part of the city, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. And please remember that if you give to the city by Thursday, December 8th, every dollar you donate will be tripled. Head to thecity.nyc slash give to donate today. That's thecity.nyc slash give. FAQ NYC is headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research, and we're a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of independent journalists, critics, and artists online at popula.com. Our hosts this episode were myself, Christina Greer, Katie Honan, and Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. Thank you to our engineer, Adam Kamara, and thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be well, be warm, and we'll be back soon with more. Look, we're the most glamorous podcast hosts. We've got we've got faces not for radio, but for yeah. uh, uh, beauty competitions. But there are there are like age and profession limits, apparently. So I, I am dying to know how you came to be involved in the Miss America orbit and universe. Um, it it is traced back to HPD because I have a good friend who uh, Matt Cregan, who formerly was a spokesman at HPD. Um, you know, through the course of our work, it's always complicated. You're working, you're reporting whenever we became friends. He's no longer at HPD. His husband went to law school with the woman named Sloan, Miss Kansas 2012, who, when she moved to New York, got involved in the Miss New York competition. I had done a little interview prep for the last three Miss New Yorks. Um, they said, you yell at politicians or you could yell out questions at um, our candidates. And then this year I was asked, they said, do you want to co MC it? It's over Memorial Day weekend in Peekskill. You get to wear a gown from Giovanni, which if any of our listeners are Real Housewives of New York fans, it's the only franchise I watch with a little bit of New, New Jersey. That is like a whole plot line, like the housewives feeling they have a song, feeling Giovanni. So as soon as I heard that I would get to wear a borrowed Giovanni gown, I said, count me in. Um, I got to wear a Giovanni gown. A, I believe Miss Georgia 2012 did my hair. She said, do you have a teasing brush? I said, no. <laughs> So my hair was teased. I got to do the, you know, the first runner up 
which then revealed the winner. It was very unreal and dramatic. And I wore huge earrings and um, I felt very glamorous. Pictures or it didn't happen. Oh, we got, I got pics. I have at least one or two pics. Um, It was very fun. And it is how I kind of learned all about this competition and how I grew up watching Miss America, you know, we, and I, I think with the bathing suit component and this beautiful only, but, you know, meeting the contestants, contestants this year who are all accomplished in their own right and have different backgrounds and different, um, everything about them is sort of how they got there is, is different, but it's, it's a scholarship competition. So they do win money. And I was very impressed with the whole organization. So but yeah, I was, I think I posted it on my Instagram and people are, people thought it was a joke, which then I don't know what that meant. I was like, no, I really did like MC this competition. It took a whole day of my life. Uh, more than that, I guess. But, um, but yeah, I learned a lot about the competition in, in behind the ice mach- machine in the backstage of the Peekskill Theater getting zipped up by, I was like, can someone just zip me up back here? You, can you help me out? Um, but yeah, it was fun. And, and it was, uh, but yeah, it all kind of started by writing about affordable housing once. Wow, that's great. <laughs> As uh, Cindy Adams says, only in New York, kids, only in New York. 